Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Dr. Mona Delahook is a pediatric psychologist. She's an expert on challenging behaviors in children with an entirely different twist from the ABA perspective that some of us are familiar with. She's the author of Beyond Behaviors, which is a book that many members of the post-traumatic parenting community naturally resonate to and are drawn towards. And we're so excited to have her on the post-traumatic parenting podcast today. Dr. Delahook, welcome. Thank you so much. I am very excited to be here with you today. Thank you so much for for joining us. We're really excited. So when I broached this with the post-traumatic parenting community and I said that I'd be interviewing you, there was a lot of excitement. And we definitely have people who have read your book and people who are like familiar with you from the various interviews you've done and things like that. I know that a lot of your work is grounded in the work of Stephen Porges and the whole polyvagal theory. For those of us who are not as up on that theory, what can you tell us? Okay, well, my work is grounded in a central understanding of the nervous system, which as a psychologist, you you may have remembered that in our training, we didn't get taught much about like the nervous system or or how the brain connects to the body, right? The brain isn't just like up there, but... We learned about talk therapy and cognitive therapy and all that. But my work, once I I re-educated myself as a developmental specialist in infants and toddlers, you could no longer use talk therapy. And so then I learned about the nervous system. And one of the main theories of the nervous system, a very well-respected theory, uh, is called the polyvagal theory. And so I was, I studied uh, Dr. Porges's work um, after I read about the concept of neuroception. It's, it's the detection of threat and safety in 2004. So a long time ago, I was studying his work. Here's the main takeaway, because I don't think parents are as interested in the science as the practical application. And that is what this theory brought the world. And it started in the trauma world. This this application from science to real life started in the trauma world, bringing more compassion for ourselves, our emotions, our behaviors, and our children's behaviors. So the primary reason I love it is that allowed me to have a new frame to better understand how behaviors are a product of the way our bodies subconsciously and consciously feel safe in the world. And it was pretty mind-blowing. It it allows us to view ourselves with tenderness as parents. And I for so those love what you're saying. Yeah. Because for the post-traumatic parenting community, you know, like every, I think, psychologist who does a dissertation, a lot of times it's about physician heal thyself. Our burning questions a lot of times are the things that are about our own life story. So for me, as a post-traumatic parent, when I was looking for resources, like how, how, what is this thing called post-traumatic parenting? How do you parent a child when you have a trauma history? And really there isn't a a ton out there, right? Like the book's never been written. Never. And, And so when I read, when I read Stephen Porges's work, when I've been in the trauma world, I feel like what you're doing is you're sort of translating that work into the parenting realm, which is so true. It needs to be translated into the parenting realm because what we are doing when we're parents so often is about the child development, is about autonomic nervous system development, is about understanding and sort of being good users of our children's neurology, right? But we're not doing it. And it's really true what you're saying also about grad students, because I know that You know, I'm a child psychologist. I went to a school clinical child program. You do not learn a ton about child development. No. I learned zero about child development. We started at age five with all the psychological testing, the assessments, and still to this day, we don't learn about development. 
I learned about development from my mentor, Dr. Serena Weeder, who was a child, one of the first child developmental specialists as a psychologist, who was a co-founder of the, um, or a, a founding member of the Zero to Three Foundation, because right. no one was thinking about infants and development. And guess what? We still don't. Right. And what you just said is so important about being a post-traumatic parent and understanding our child's neurology rather than trying to just understand our child's psychology without the neurology, but even more important, it helps us understand our own nervous system. Right. And I can tell you as a colleague, post-traumatic parent myself, I felt crazy a lot of the times because this was, my children are, are all adults now, but I felt like what am I doing? I'm a psychologist. I did my dissertation on the attachment theory. You know, I knew everything about attachment and I adored and adore my kids, of course, but there was something happening in my nervous system. I was getting subconsciously triggered. And I'll just tell you super quick for me, it was something that happened to me as a, I had medical trauma between the age of about five and fifth grade, you know, so kindergarten to fifth grade, I missed on an average of 55 school days a year from being sick. I had a very peculiar case of asthma and I was just chronically ill as a child. So when I had children and I, I got, you know, I was fine after that. I went to normal school. I was able to go to high school and college and, and all that, but the trauma of being sick all the time lived in me. And when I had my children, I was terrified whenever I'm so protective of them. And whenever they got a cold, even I would feel so red pathway, so scared and my heart would race and I would figure, and and no one was talking about trauma back then either. So I thought I had an anxiety disorder, but guess what? I did not. Right. So many post-traumatic parents don't realize that, that you don't necessarily have an anxiety disorder when you're post-traumatic. You're, you're surviving based on real threat that you're perceiving in the world, right? Yes. Yes. So let's talk about that. Here's where compassion comes in. The feelings and subconscious memories that we have, those early memories were protective of us. When I was a little, a little child lying in my bed, struggling to breathe, wondering if I was going to live or die, my emotions and behaviors protected me. And so being a protective mom, that was, I should look at that as with benevolence. And instead, sometimes, sometimes my child's pediatrician or, or a school person during a uh, IEP would say, well, you're overprotective as if that's a bad thing. Well, guess what? Under the benevolence of this way to look at our nervous system reactions as adaptive patterns, we can both become aware of them become friendly with them and not beat ourselves up as much. And then we actually do become more relaxed too. So it's a great deal. Yeah. Right. It's very true because if you think about it and so many, like what, like hearing that pathological language of your being overprotective, one of the things that happens with trauma, I like to call trauma professor trauma because trauma teaches us such effective lessons. One of the things professor trauma teaches us is that the world is a much more dangerous place then sometimes our brain even wants us to perceive. Really, we're not accurate in our estimations of risk because we wouldn't be able to go through life if we were accurate in our estimations of risk, right? Every time our children leave us, potentially they could never come home. It's true. When you haven't experienced trauma, it's kind of like, oh, the kid gets on the school bus, they go to school, they have a pretty good day, they come home and life continues. When you've lost someone, I lost my father at a young age. When you've lost someone, you're aware that, you know, death happens. It happens suddenly. We can't really control it. So like when you're saying about having asthma, right? Oxygen is just not, it's not optional, right? It's It's optional, (laughs) right? So of course you learn that like health is dangerous and that, you know, risks are real and you want to protect kids from them. Uh, Yes. And benevolently, when my mother looked at me with terror in her eyes, of course she did. How did I feel terrorized because she thought I was going to die? And then you look, you see that. And again, I adore my mom. So I hope we can have a broad view of trauma because trauma can happen. Certainly, if you've had ACEs, if you have had a, have you been exposed to, to 
poverty and a lack of nutrition and racism and and all those things that that adds to our aces right to our stress right. count but i think we can now say that since we've all gone through the pandemic every parent in the world pro- probably has a set up every parent in the world is a traumatic parent right. because no no time in the last 100 years have we all wondered and worried about our our ability to live and be there for our children or our children catching a pandemic that didn't yet have a cure. Right. So I think what your, your work is essential because now we're all in the trenches in some way. Right. We're all post-traumatic now. And also I think you're saying something very important about parenting, which is that the best intention parents can still traumatize us. And, you know, I have that, you know, kind of DBT approach of, our parents always did the best they could with the tools they had. Most parents, I mean, there's that subset of people who are abusive, but right. most people are doing the best they can with the tools they have. And you can be traumatized without an abuser, right? A parent right. who's trying to 100%. protect her child from poverty or a parent who's trying to, you know, emphasize a certain pathway to success and inadvertently traumatizes the child had good intentions and was doing the best they could with the tools they had just the tools aren't always there a hundred percent and we again we have to look at that with 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 great compassion my mother was also an immigrant so she was navigating this country she did not know how to access systems so the amount of stress on her was enormous and and she loved me so much and yet and yes I did see the terror in her eyes when I couldn't breathe and that is oxygen is so basic that it's no surprise that I went into psychology to heal myself and to feel safe in the world and I love this field now because I'm trying to bring the body into parenting right and into our knowledge base so we can stop beating ourselves up so much right I think it's so true and I think that's why post traumatic parents have gravitated towards your book because a lot of post-traumatic parents have a very strong sense of what they don't want to do. Like they're very clear about what like the stuff that they want to avoid is, but there's no roadmap for what do I yes want to do? Because that's right. That's right. And let's just face it, the pressure on social media to be a positive parent, a perfect Mm -hmm. parent, a great parent, you know, there's pressure. I, I I love the access to information we get from social media, but I also feel the pressure for parents to want to, to do it right, to be perfect, and to not let what happened to them happen to their children. Right. Yeah. And when you don't have a roadmap, you're even more susceptible to pressure because you're like, oh, wait, what that mom's doing looks really good. I should probably be doing that. And then the next day, it's right. like, that looks good. I should be doing that. And it's hard to have, because you really do need a unified theory of what's essential, what's nice, but not essential and what's harmful and harmful. I think most post-traumatic parents know we're really good at, these are the parenting practices that I don't want, but what's beneficial and then what's essential, that's so much harder. Absolutely. I think that what I wrote about in Beyond Behaviors helps us frame the roadmap a little bit more because children give us signals and we we don't have to chase other people's signals i don't want parents chasing parenting experts or parenting advisors signals and scripts i want parents to look at their children's nervous systems and detect what their child needs and of course to detect what they need this is a whole new roadmap and it's really it's it's a it's a better one because the best script in the world if you say it to your have you ever used a script of what, uh, oh, here's what a good parent would say right now. And you say it to your child and it falls flat on its face. Yeah. And you're like, oh, shoot. I I just said the right words. And my child is is still a mess lying on the floor crying. Right. And and there's a reason why. So, right. Because there's no attunement when we're like following a script, right? There's no, the minute where I'm concentrating so hard on the script. I know I had that as a beginning therapist when we were doing like manualized treatments. And, you know, you're following this like anxiety treatment for kids script, but I'm not attuning to the kid in front of me. Yeah. And like, of course it falls flat because there's a kid there. And I remember. Oh, Robin, I had, yes, I had all those scripts on, on note cards in my desk. I pulled them out and review them before I had my first, you know, some of my, in those first few years. Scripts make us feel better. And that's okay. If you want to try it, it's okay. Everything is okay. 
but I just want parents to know that if you're saying the right things and you're reading the books and doing what everyone says you should be doing and it's still not working, that's okay too because parenting is hard and your child is a moving target. Right. Right. I love that. Right. Your child is a moving target. Yeah. So I wanted to move to a question that a lot of the moms were having, which was this idea that compassionate and non-coercive parenting sounds and is ideal, but how do you implement it without being a pushover as a parent? How do you teach kids consequences of their actions, emotion regulation, and discipline without getting into power struggles? Mm. What a great question. It's a really great question. And Here's the basic idea is that being a a compassionate and positive parent can coexist with being a parent who has good boundaries Mm -hmm. and who is authoritative when necessary and who is kind of, you know, I call it a a very benevolent alpha mommy or daddy, right? right? because our children need us to guide them. And so we can do both, but that's very easy to say and maybe harder to to kind of, well, what does that look like in real life? So let me say that I think the reason it's hard is that our culture doesn't talk about the important role of something called co-regulation, what it is and how we use it. So let me just say, Co-regulation is basically sharing the um, strength when you have it of your own nervous system with your child. It's kind of a subconscious process. It's not what you say. It's how you are because our little humans are going to do things that are impulsive, that are wrong. Sometimes they're going to be in a meltdown, which is non-intentional and all they need is co-regulation. What they need is another human who's calm to use the techniques that work for this child in this moment, not a generic child, but this child in this moment to come alongside and let the child's nervous system know that they're not alone and that their pain is being witnessed. So you can do both. And another myth buster I'd like to say is that we really can't teach children emotion regulation. So there's this, there's a a school of thought that comes from preschool educators. And I love preschool educators um, that, and a lot of curriculums that are teaching social emotional health. Okay. And there's a problem in the context it's, there's n- nothing wrong with ch- teaching children how to breathe and teaching children about little yoga poses and all those wonderful things. That's great. But that's not how children develop self-regulation and self-control. They develop it through our relationship of nonverbal communication, one nervous system to another. And um, we, we, we want to understand that there are ways to not get into a power struggle if we're following the child's cues. Right. And to my borrow my calmness, right? Like I feel yes. like with a lot of situations, it's true. Like we we when you're really attuned with a kid and you're really co-regulating, which is not so easy to do if no one's cued you into it, you really do feel like you're literally on the same wavelength. Like we are co-regulating together. Our breathing is going into sync. You can really feel that feeling of like, we are absolutely in sync right now. And then the child will learn from that to develop their own capacity, right? But we can't force the capacity onto them, particularly when they're not, when they're very dysregulated. That is so beautiful. I love how you said that. It's an embodied experience. You could feel it. Now, what about some of us who maybe didn't get that from our parents, right? And, and some of us who, who, are, who have never heard of this before and didn't feel it in their bodies. Let's have compassion for those of us. And this sounds like, whoa, that sounds like really weird. Okay, that's all right. Have so Again, give yourself a hug if that feels really weird because some of this is a journey inside ourselves. 
to find that calmness. And just let me say, I wish I would have had this information when my children were, were little. So I learned it on, uh, when my youngest was five. But before then, I felt that being a good parent meant that I had to set my child straight, make sure I was disciplined enough with them so that I wouldn't be the pushover and that they would go out into society and not be respectful of our world. That was a big concern of mine. And it's, and it still is. I want to raise good humans, right? And you can do both. But honestly, I think we don't have the context yet because we are thinking about things as either being a pushover or being too authoritarian. And for post-traumatic parents, it's really scary to think about being on either edge, right? Right. Right. It is very scary. Some of those strategies, like the behavior plans and the sticker charts and things like that, they're very easy to comprehend on a cognitive level. It's like, oh, your kid doesn't hang up his coat when he comes home and you're having all these fears of people thinking of him as an impolite, uneducated child who has an incompetent mom. So if you do the sticker chart and then the kid gets a sticker every time he hangs up his coat, you feel like you know exactly what to do. So it's easy to wrap your mind around, but then when you're doing things like that and you see where situations aren't working out so well, where the kid is either resistant or the kid is so dysregulated that it's not the right time. Because I remember working with a family where the mother was trying to implement a system like that and she really wanted her kids like to hang up their coats. And she had a lot of things about um, having been raised in a home that was very messy and considered dysfunctional. No one was ever going to say her home was dysfunctional. So there was a lot of threat there for her. And pointing out to her that right when her child comes home from school, this child didn't like to use the bathroom in school, didn't like to eat in school, was kind of inhibited in school. His brain has no blood sugar in it. His body needs the bathroom. He can't think about anything but like getting to the bathroom and you need to regulate his blood sugar because he's not even thinking that he's hungry, but he is. Then when his, when I, what I would say is we've restored his smart brain, then we can say, okay, now is the time to pick up that jacket that you discarded. And then very happily and very bought into the behavior system at that point, very happily, he would hang up his coat, put his shoes in the cubby, put a sticker on his chart and smile at his mom. But if the mom was so insistent on the instant he walks in, hang up your coat, you're asking for more frontal lobe capacity than that child has at that moment. You are asking for more capacity than the child has at that moment. That is huge. And I've seen this happen in ABA. I've seen this happen in schools where the adult in charge is feeling and has been taught, again, that consistency is the most important thing. And if you, if you let the child think that you're going to um, shift the rules now, they're going to expect that you shift the rules in an hour or tomorrow or, or in a minute. And I get that. I was taught that in behavior classes in college. Okay. That is a big piece of our thinking, but it leaves out the important variable. Right. <laughs> As Dr. Porges says, it leaves out the intervening variable. And that is the state of the child's body. Right. right. There is no amount of coercion. And so sometimes we get, we go digging and we get more and more into it. It becomes a power struggle. And the child starts to cry and froth at the mouth and, and get so upset when what you just said, they needed to go potty or they needed some water or they needed a snack because their blood sugar was low. It's just a new way of thinking about what are, what's um, beyond the behavior, right? right. Like what's, we're not saying get rid of the behavioral expectation. You can have the behavioral oh, expectation, but yeah. we have to pay attention to the body first. That's right. right. Absolutely. That's so helpful because that's, I feel like a lot of the moms were bringing this question up in various forms and okay. some of the dads too, but we were getting this in various yeah. forms of, especially, I don't want to be a pushover, but I also yes. don't want to be coercive. Yes. And we're not, and we're advocating that you don't have to be either. Um, and it feels, it feel, it can feel very messy and it can feel very uncharted because many of us were not parented that way. Right. And, and your child is likely not educated like that at school because our schools still very much work on sticker charts and positive and negative reinforcement. So it's a great question. And while we're on the topic of sticker charts, maybe I can just say just really Quickly, when you're working with a child's nervous system and things are in sync, 
there's no better reinforcer than a loving, gentle smile from a parent saying, thank you, my darling. Right. You don't need to add a sticker onto that. Right. As humans, we are made for social engagement. We are not created to get stickers necessarily. And again, if you want to do a sticker and it makes you feel good as a parent, that's fine. But I just want parents to know it's not about the sticker, the treat, the incentive. It's about showing the child that we are pleased with them and we're grateful. That's the biggest reward of all. It's called social engagement. Right. It's so true that what we really want our children to be reinforced by is relationships, first with us and then with their significant others and with their own children, right? We want them to find relationships the most rewarding. I don't want to raise a lab rat who for the rest of their life is always just responding to the proper reinforcement, right? I want someone who has a sense of values, right? When you have a sense of values, you're not responding to necessarily reward. Sometimes you're punished for your values. When you stand up to a bully, in the short run, that might be scary. The other kids might laugh at you. You're internally reinforced because you're enacting your values, right? It's not about the sticker in that moment. And that's the kind of kid we want to raise. That's right. It's a child with the true north that comes from the inside of a value. A value is, a, is something that you, that you is, is a part of your intuition, right? It's not a part of something I learned or memorized or... Again, think how awkward a child would be is if they do something well at school for their teacher and she doesn't happen to have a sticker chart and the child says, so where's my reward? Where's my sticker? Right. So now what do I get? Okay, I did my assignment. Where's my treat? You're right. It's just not very natural. Right. It's true. I have a I have a daughter who happens to have a strong sense of justice. She's in fourth grade and she came home and she said something very key to me. She has a student in her class with a disability, a physical disability, and my daughter stood up for her. She basically told the rest of the class they had a choice of playing a certain game with a hard ball or a soft ball and the softer, like bigger ball. And my daughter said, you know, if we play with the harder ball, this girl can't join. But if we play with the softer ball, then the entire class can join. So we should play. And one of the other girls was kind of pushing back. And my daughter said to her, well, I want to include everyone. And I think that if I, if we can't include her, then I'll just play with her by myself and I won't join the game. My daughter happens to be a very good athlete. So it's rewarding wow. to have her be part of the game. And then what she told me that was key is she said, and I came home and I thought, and then later on that day, I think she told me that that girl said something about the weirdos who go to the OT teacher, the OT room. My daughter mm-hmm. said, I'm a weirdo who goes to the OT room. My daughter has a very poor, fine motor control even though she's very athletic. So she's like, I'm a weirdo who goes to the OT room. Like she didn't mind saying that. She said, I knew I would come home and I would tell you that. And you would sparkle your eyes at me because you would be so proud. Oh, oh, that story. It just gives me chills. And you know, someone who was bullied, the fact that my daughter is standing up for someone who was bullied, it just was like, wow, somewhere deep inside me, a little girl who was bullied as a student was just like comforted that that my daughter uh-huh. did that. And the way she was like, she wasn't asking me for a reward. She didn't want me to take her to the toy no. store. She knew I would no. sparkle my eyes at her. See, just thank you for sharing that story. It's heartwarming on so many levels. And what it, what it demonstrates is that when we have this parenting style that is an embodied experience of respecting a child and, and leading them, through our example and not through reward and reward systems, they begin, we begin to live inside of them. So when that happened at school, cause she was getting scuffed from the other kids, it wasn't easy to do what she did, but she had this little vision of you with sparkly eyes in her head, guiding her. It's a beautiful example of embodied experience, but also this transmission of our values to our children and um, of the experience of feeling loved and accepted. So, right. And the way she just was, you know, because my daughter is very confident, it comes with the, you know, she's a stronger willed kid. So, you know, and I I sometimes (laughs) back when I hear that from her. She could bring it. Yeah, she could bring it. She's as strong willed as she needs to be. She's great. But she has learned to use her strong will in positive ways, which she can. She's very comfortable. You're like, I'm a weirdo who goes to the OT room because she's confident. It doesn't bother her. See, and that I, I admire that in kids because I was not that kid. 
neither was I, I. I was actually I was diagnosed with selective mutism in kindergarten, so I couldn't talk. I would just sat there. It's very common for first generation um, children, and so I just sat there. But when my daughter, that's not that we're just going to go on telling kids stories, but when my daughter intervened when she found a little uh, one of her classmates was being um, tied up by a hose that children found on the playground. Wow. <laughs> she demanded everyone to leave and and she unwound uh, un, uh, the hose and, and saved the little girl from being uh, tied up. That little part of me just felt like, wow, that's not the scared little girl I was. Exactly. So I, I want parents to know that if you've had if you've had a difficult childhood, if you were terrified or weren't didn't feel safe in the world, um, that doesn't mean that you're not going to be a great parent. And it also mean it doesn't mean that you have to overcompensate. Really, there's so much pressure on parenting anyway. There's a gentle way of doing it, and that is by reading, um, reading your child's signals. And as you know, and you've got a lot of children, as you know, every child is going to be different. They're going to be wired up according to a lot of different variables, and every child is unique and different. That's definitely leading into the next question that a few people asked, which was about co-regulation when you have multiple children in the home. For example, one, one parent asked a really good question. When one sibling is aggressive towards the other, and the parent really wants to co-regulate with the aggressive child because they feel like that child clearly needs help right now, but then it feels wrong because like the victim is crying. How do you manage to focus your attention? That is beautiful. And it happens every day, right? So it's, first of all, let's recognize how difficult that is. It's hard. Let's just like inside of our heads, we can say in the moment, this is so hard. This is, ouch, oh, this is hard. Okay, so let's recognize it's hard. What I love in that question, though, what I love in that question is that that parent is recognizing in the moment that the offending child is in a state of distress. This was my primary message in Beyond Behaviors is that we need to distinguish distress behaviors from intentional misbehavior. And so I love that question in that this parent knows this child needs a little help right now. Right. Because this is a distressed, distressed child because I'm seeing a distressed behavior. So, again, we can think in layers of co-regulation, which is why we have to take such good care of ourselves. And we'll talk about that later. But in the moment, um, we stay calm. And if we can imagine being that benevolent alpha. So I can imagine a situation where we might say, to the offending child who maybe say, say they, they kicked their sibling or something, they hit their sibling, you say um, to everybody involved, a sweetie, you, you know, it's, well, you can't hit your, 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 your sibling, you can't hit. Um, that's not in how our family rolls. We, that's not okay. So I'm going to be with you in a second. I can tell there's something going on. I want to help. And then you go to the child who was hit and maybe go, sweetheart, are you okay? Uh, this is a tough situation. Brother is um, agitated or brother's having a hard time. And this is tough. Are you okay, sweetheart? And I'm here for you too. And then if you ha happen to have another adult to, to help, that's wonderful. If you don't, that might be enough to just acknowledge this is hard. Acknowledge that one kid, no, you can be the benevolent alpha and really make sure everyone's safe. We have to, first of all, make sure everyone's safe. Are you okay? No, you can't do that. That's not part of how our family rolls. But on the other hand, I see you. I see you're struggling. So you are talking as a parent who's authoritative and who's strong, which children need, but you're also seeing that that nervous system, both nervous systems need co-regulation. And what you're saying here is that there's no, um, there's no like consequence in that moment. There's no punishing because you're recognizing, and I think you're teaching the children to recognize that there are big emotions all around right now. And the kid who kicked was demonstrating some big emotions, right? He's just a very little human who's demonstrating some big emotions. So we're going to be compassionate about it. We're still going to tell him, you know, feet are not for kicking, right? Right, right. 
Right. And to the and if they can't hear us, if they're not processing language, if they're very out of control, then we have to, you know, we have to keep everyone safe. We, we can't allow the kicking to continue. Right. So depending on the situation, depending on how desperate the child is, uh, we set down, we make sure everyone's safe. We set down the limit. But to put a kicking child uh, to add an additional aversive at that moment, because the child's already in a bad state from the nervous system to give them a timeout or to say, you've lost, okay, you've just, you've just lost your afternoon of everything. You're going to be sitting, you know, in home with, in a, in a, in a corner or something, not that parents would say that, but like, just say you've lost TV for the rest of the day or whatever that increases the sense of despair in the nervous system. So Again, being an, a nice authoritative parent doesn't necessarily mean layering on consequences on top of an unstable nervous system. It means staying in charge and making sure everyone's okay and then tending to the co-regulation that needs to happen. Right, right. Which I think for so many parents, that we have this ethic of justice that I'm not sure where it's even coming from, that we feel like we're letting the child who was hurt down by not, you know, somehow in the moment disciplining the child who did the hurting. Yeah, yeah. And and it's I think it's instinctual. I mean, I I feel like it's kind of instinctual for us, or maybe it's just the way we're programmed in our culture to when a child does something hurtful, we really want it, we want to discipline them and make sure they know that's not okay. I get that, right? As a parent, it's kind of like, no, this is this is not how I'm raising you. Yeah. I, that is, you know, that let's acknowledge that we have these feelings of responsibility of raising them upright. We're going to feel that. But then if we add this context of understanding the difference between a purposeful misbehavior and an out of control stress response, then our lens shifts. Okay. The paradigm shifts to a broader understanding beyond the behavior to what's really happening. I love that because I feel like what we're really doing is acknowledging that there's two limited little humans in this situation. Yes, the the brother kicked and he shouldn't have kicked. But then again, as a grown up, I sometimes yell when I shouldn't yell or I sometimes, you know, say a word I shouldn't say, right? There's we we often do that in the heat of strong emotion. But we can also talk to our kids tomorrow and the next day. We get multiple chances with our children. We can have many conversations about what feet are used for and what our menus are for big emotions that don't involve kicking people. Yes, of course we can. And let's also remember that if you're, if you're over 25 years old and you're fairly intact as a parent, um, you have far more capacity for self-control than your five-year-old or your three-year-old or even your 12-year-old. Because this capacity for intentional control of emotions and behaviors for the development of executive function starts at around two or three and it ends in the mid 20s. So if you're past 25, you have way more self-control than your child does. But we have this expectation gap where we think if a child tries hard enough, they should be able to control their emotions. And it's simply not true. And sometimes they are controlling their emotions by kicking. It's the emotion gets discharged. But the um, so it's their emotions that they're controlling. It's their body that they're not controlling. And, you know, we act as though we like control yourself. But like very often I, I've asked children, like I, there's a misconception amongst children that they get from their parents. Like if I go into a second grade classroom and I'll say, you know, if you're angry and you yell or you hit someone, will you feel less angry? And a lot of kids will say no. And I'll say, actually, yes, right? It will work. In the moment, you're going to feel less angry. That's why you do it. It's just that it's a silly thing to do because there's smarter things to do. But the kids are learning that misconception that somehow it's ineffective. It's effective. It's just that it's not the smartest thing you can do with your emotion. Right. And what we, what we know as the adults is that in that moment, that Kicking was an adaptive response to stress of that child's nervous system. Now, I don't mean it was adaptive in the classroom situation. Right. What I mean is that it was adaptive to the sympathetic nervous system engaging away from what's called the ventral vagal, which is the calm. We call it the green pathway, if you've read the book. Right. That when we shift either any human, adult or child, but when we shift into the sympathetic nervous system, 
then our ability for intentional control is undermined and, and not in, and we're not really in control, especially if you're a little kid, especially if you're below five, hundred percent. And which means we really need to be understanding um, toddler behaviors in a new way as quickly as possible and, and stop all the preschool suspensions and expulsions because they're all being made on this basis of, oh, this child should control their behaviors and help that child control their behaviors. They just need more support to do that. They want to control themselves, but they need a little more help. Right. I mean, they want to be socially adaptive. They want to get along with their friends. They want to stay in the classroom, right? They want all those things. They want to make us happy. Mm -hmm. It's just that it's too painful to hold on to that fear or that anger in that given moment. And we don't want them to lose that, right? Because if they lose that, then you end up with a lot of clinical disorders in adulthood. You can't feel your fear or you can't feel your anger. We have problems. Well, that is such a good point. And there's some literature now on masking, right? Especially for some of our neurodivergent students, but I think for all students, for anxious students, they have a mask that makes them look compliant and so that they won't get in trouble. And we do what we see we should do in order to to not get in trouble. But what happens to those feelings? You're absolutely right. Those feelings go inside of us and can creep up years later as more of of emotional distress situations. And and we want to, um, to just try to prevent that as much as possible. Right. People will lose the ability to state I'm angry or I'm scared. They'll lose the ability to be in touch with that. And then in psychotherapy, it's, you know, it's my job to get an older teen or an adult to acknowledge like you're quite angry. You know, you're angry at your mother for what your upbringing was like. Right. And you have to be able to say it and feel it and process it. Because if you can't, you know, as Dan Siegel says, if you can't name it, you can't tame it. Right. We have to be able to talk about it. Well, we do. And, and if you think about even how acceptable that is in our culture, like for many children, if they say, I'm angry at you and they yell it right in a classroom, they could be shamed for that. Right. Like you shouldn't be talking that way. You know, you're going to get your, your color chart moved down to from green to yellow or whatever, because we're not, um, we're not inclusive yet of the language of emotions, especially negative emotions, even in play. It it seems like we tend to reinforce positive play. And if the play gets uh, aggressive, negative, or uh, super, um, uh, you know, challenging, then we like, oh, that's not a nice way to play. But we need to let children own their anger, their aggression, because that's just as legitimate of an emotion as is, um, being caring and loving and kind. Right. And we're allowed, to, we're allowed to be angry. It's okay. You, you may not be able to act on your anger aggressively, but you're allowed to tell me that you're angry. You're allowed to say you're frustrated. You're allowed to have all the emotions. You're, you, you know, all emotions are welcome, but it, it is true that there's this like disconnect between like sort of the social and emotional learning we teach in the classroom, which mm-hmm. very much does emphasize the positive emotions mm-hmm. and what, is the reality of what children go through in a given day where what we really need to teach them how to do is to have their uncomfortable feelings and function and cope in the world. Absolutely. That's so it. there was another question that came in that was interesting about um, helping a child notice their feelings before reacting to them. I understand they don't have the skills yet to use their words, but how can I guide them in acquiring the skill? Or what do I need to observe in a child that is making progress? I'm in my late 30s and I'm not quite there yet. So my hope is to grow along with my children. This came from a mom who's saying that she doesn't love the whole idea of use your words because it doesn't seem to be resonating with her kid. Like there seems to be an step that they're missing. Oh, yay for that. And, And I just think use your words is the most overused thing we can do. I'm glad you're understanding that it's not working. Okay. So (laughs) here's one of my little soapboxes. Um, and, and that is that we use, use your words too often before a child has that embodied experience of the sensation of what causes the emotion, which is something going on inside of your body. Many children don't feel that yet. They have to learn to slow down enough 
to sense what's happening. Is my heart beating faster? Is it, you know, am I sweaty palms? What's, what does this mean? What does this mean? And then when we say use your words too soon, even for a six-year-old, a six-year-old is still very early on the journey of pinning a word to an emotion. So I would say we need to stop asking children to use their words so much and instead go to recognizing that if a child is having a hard time, what they need is additional co-regulation from us. And oftentimes if we come alongside and it's like, hey buddy, can I sit by you? Oh my goodness, this day is moving so fast and we now we have to get in the car and leave this play date. Oh my goodness, what's happening? It's so hard, you know, and then we just kind of sit there and maybe witness what we think might be going on in that little nervous system. Okay, difficulty with the transition. We are transitioning our children way too fast, or we were before the pandemic, maybe, I don't know about now, but before that, we were expecting children to go from one activity to another. It's called a transition. Very fast. That's a difficult process for many children, you know, under the age of of 10. So um, acquiring skills would be, let's try to co-regulate, have a lot of gentleness for yourself. And I think she was also hinting at how do I know if we're making progress? Right. And here's one way, a good way, you know, if you're making progress, and that is the barometer for progress is your child's recovery time. So when they get upset, is their amount of time and energy spent in that upsetness? Is it getting a little less every time instead of being a half an hour meltdown? Is it 15 minutes now? Has it gone from 15 minutes to five minutes? That's progress. So recovery time is a good barometer. If that's not changing, then we want to amp up the co-regulation and go deeper into that first level of social-emotional development, which is co-regulating our nervous systems together. As Deb Dana, um, my colleague Deb Dana, in the polyvagal therapy, adult therapy world says, we befriend our nervous system so that we can befriend our child's nervous system. Right. I love what you're saying about the recovery time from a meltdown, because I think a lot of post-traumatic parents are going to look at it as my kid is still having meltdowns as opposed to like, but what is the duration, the frequency, the intensity of the meltdown? They're not looking, you're, you're opening their eyes to a different barometer. That's much more nuanced. Yes. And it's easy to get discouraged if you're still seeing meltdowns, but Don't expect them to just go away. In fact, we don't really want them to totally go away because we're humans, for goodness sake, and we're all in a crisis pandemic. But yeah, that's a good barometer. Recovery time is a very good barometer on if you're making progress. Right. And that is. And and I think for a parent to see that, that recovery time is getting faster or the intensity is getting lower, like noticing those things, you can be hopeful. I'm trying to go to the zero meltdown life. It's not realistic. It doesn't make sense for developmentally. It doesn't, I mean, adults still have meltdowns sometimes. And like you're saying, sometimes meltdowns are very adaptive meltdowns, meltdowns and panic, for example, keep us alive in emergency situations, right? Absolutely. Without the sympathetic nervous system, we would be, none of us would be here. <laughs> our, our generations before us would have been eaten up by tigers. So, or whatever creatures were there millions of years ago. So. Yeah, we need activation. We need activation. It keeps us alive. And I think this is similar. I think the answer to this question, you've almost answered already. Um, I'm a mother of a four-year-old boy that starts the tantrum when told a no. He's very smart. He comprehends what we say to him. He's starting to exhibit hitting himself and saying bad words when he is angry. He eventually calms down. But in the moment, he's very stubborn. He becomes very fixated on being told no. What else can we do besides give negative consequences and redirecting the negative behavior? Okay. Well, the good news is that you've identified a trigger, being told no. So that's awesome. Again, these questions are so wonderful. These parents are so um, good observers of of your children. That's wonderful. So, So a no is triggering a fight or flight response. So if he's hitting himself and saying bad words, that's a signal that the red pathway, the sympathetic nervous system has engaged and is driving the behaviors. So 
You'll have to be creative. Of course, I can't give you advice about specific children that I don't know, but I would say look as to um, uh, maybe why is being told no so difficult and is it too fast? Oftentimes, we are, we are, again, making transitions too fast for children. Maybe we're saying no too, too often, but there's also some really fun ways of saying no. I tend to um, coach parents of toddlers to actually not use the word no very often. Um, here's an here's a, here's a example, a little um, three-year-old who is just wanting to find cell, anyone's cell phone you know, all the time she's just obsessed with cell phones. And so she'll go and grab people's cell phones. And so this mommy has found a way of saying, um, don't, not saying, no, no, don't do that. You can't have that. It's like, but she says in this kind of beautiful sing-songy voice, like, not for little kids. Nope, not for little kids. Then they put it away. And the child kind of looks at her like, oh, okay. Instead of, no. You know, so right. there's other ways of saying no than just saying no. You could you could redirect. You could say, "Oh my goodness, I ah, I know, who want that." Well, let's think of another thing. And the reason I'm saying that is that in this question, we are talking about a four year old that starts to tantrum very easily, right. and I just want parents to have a lot of gentleness for themselves and for the child. Because a, a child who tantrums very easily is more vulnerable. And it's a good signal to just be a little more gentle on those transitions. Be gentle with yourself and with the child. I think also, I, I love what you're saying. First of all, I would, I would redirect the parents' attention a little bit to the idea that not taking no for an answer can be this kid's superpower when he's an adult. Like he'll, maybe he'll be a great negotiator or a great salesman. I love that. Right. It's been or an attorney. <laughs> yeah, one day. But for right. now, I think you're saying that the, the transition is too abrupt to a no. And I think when you're four and you hear a no, it's like you'll never get it. I think the parent has to give as few no's as possible and give a lot of not yet's. Like, right, the kid comes from one ice cream. They see ice cream on the counter. One ice cream. After dinner, we can have ice cream. So you're not saying no, you can't have ice cream because in a four-year-old brain, that means I'm never having ice cream again in the world. Ice cream is over forever and canceled. And there's no such thing as ice cream anymore. Whereas it's like, not yet. Of course, we can have ice cream after we eat our healthy food. Then what's that? Yes. A not yet is giving hope, right? Right. Not yet. Not now. But oh, maybe after dinner. And then you move on. You just share it. It's kind of like a child who doesn't want to leave the park. A four-year-old or three-year-old who doesn't want to leave the park, of course they're not going to want to leave the park. It's fun there. It's like, oh my goodness, but you will come back tomorrow. Or if you know you are coming back tomorrow, oh, it'll be so fun to see it tomorrow. To just help a not yet is better than a no. It's just gentler. Right. It sounds like a parent's overusing a no for a child who would probably be able to accept the occasional hard no when it really is a hard no, like we don't play with matches kind of hard no. We're, when when we can for a kid like this, it's so much better to do the not yet or to manage the expectation. Three more slides down the sliding pond and then it's home time as opposed to no, we're leaving the park, right? Yeah. Like, and- so that's a, yeah, yeah, that's right, right. So you try a more gentle approach and you prolong it and see how that works. If it works, if there's a little more recovery time, you know you're going in the right direction. If it doesn't work, it's only, it's not a signal that you're a bad parent. It's a signal that the child is more vulnerable than you thought. And so we continue not to blame the child or yourself, but you go deeper on the amount of support a child needs because some children need a lot of emotional support in these early years. And it's, again, it's not their choice. It's a complex mix of their constitution, their genetics, and their environment. So just go gentle, see if it works. If it doesn't, you just go more gentle. Right. Right. And I feel like I feel like when the parent understands that, that it's almost that idea that if the child is that adverse to no's, then we have to see how many no's are truly necessary and how many times when you say no, you actually mean not yet. And how many times when you say no, you mean soon, right? So that the child understands that there's hope, there's a future, like what you were saying before. 
it will happen, just not today or not right now. And yeah, there will be a still a reaction, but it's not as strong because you are building the pathway of, yeah, but tomorrow we are going to have it. Later, we can have right. ice cream. Absolutely. So and if you deliver this. it, yeah, if you deliver it with confidence and with with hope in your voice, you know, if you deliver it with, okay, this is not the end of the world and we can all manage this. We can do this. <laughs> right. And, you know, the fact that our child, I think sometimes, especially when we're post-traumatic, seeing our child in the throes of that level of distress where they're devastated, you know, because you told them they can't have ice cream right now and they're crying and they're screaming. And like, there's, you know, you see, there's absolutely no conscious brain that's functioning right now. They're just a massive pool of distress. I think that's so triggering for us. And we think I must be a bad parent if this is happening. But what you're saying is that's normal. Every child is going to sometimes have that moment of complete dysregulation. Absolutely. Expect it. And if your child never has it, please consult a developmental specialist because we do want to see some distress, some meltdowns. We do. This is part of being human, for goodness sake. Yeah. Yeah. I think the eeriest part, I know like you and I have had similar um, clinical experience backgrounds is sometimes when you go to like a therapeutic nursery or an early childhood program for kids who've been abused and it's like eerily quiet. Yes. It's actually terrifying because you're looking at children. As soon as you see children like that, where you're in a classroom of four-year-olds who are silent or a nursery class of two-year-olds and there's like no exuberance, no distress. Yeah. We get, as professionals, we get very nervous about that. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's just a huge red flag for us. We look, go in there and we kind of get chills and think, um, how are we going to, how are we going to increase uh, some joy, first of all, but also where's the movement? Where's right. the affect? Where, where's the pushback? Yeah. Right. When we're, when we're like watching, you know, like a strange situation type of task where we're watching parents interact and we see that normal, you know, anger, frustrated response. If a child's thwarted from playing with a toy, we don't judge that parent and say, oh no, bad mom. Look, she didn't teach her child how to use his words. We say, oh, normal three-year-old, normal mom. This is good. This is healthy. This is what we expect. You take a toy truck away from a little kid the kid's going to be upset. We want to see that. If the kid's not upset, we get very worried. Yeah, absolutely. And the last question, I think, which is such an interesting one and probably unique to post-traumatic parenting is this idea of a freeze response. So I had a few moms who asked the same question, which was so interesting. Due to my history of abuse and harsh punishment, I have an aversion to sudden or very strong touch I know it's my trigger. It's not my kid's fault, but how do I co-regulate when I'm feeling so triggered? Some parents ask this about positive interactions. Like my toddler likes to come home from school and run into me and hug me tightly. And that triggers me or negative interactions. My son is tantruming. He flails out and hits me. I get that it's not intentional, but I freeze. Hmm. Just a absolutely beautiful question. And it goes to the heart of trauma, really. And trauma gets stored in our bodies and brains as sensory experiences. So many of these sensory experiences, we do not consciously remember, but they live in us. So say you have an aversion to sudden or unexpected touch. This is actually quite a common experience uh, for traumatized individuals if they have been uh, exposed to harsh touch at a very early age or, or worse, right? If they've been harshly punished or hit or whatever. But even if you haven't, unexpected touch can be a huge trigger. So what do we do? First of all, we value the body's ex- response to sensory experiences. Touch is a sensory experience. This is how trauma gets lodged in us. So a recognition when that happens, the moment it happens, the recognition of, oh, okay, it's a touch. This is a moment for me to re- recognize I'm triggered. And then I, I just love the, the work of Kristen Neff. I mean, she works with self-compassion. I think um, self-compassion is one of our greatest gifts as parents, but especially as post-traumatic parents, because gentleness doesn't always come easy. And so I would just say in that moment, if you can quickly go through this idea of that, this is a really hard situation right now. Ouch. This is, this is difficult. 
I'm not alone. This is, this is not just me. This is a common experience. And then finally, be gentle, be gentle, be gentle on yourself, be gentle on the child. And if possible, being respectful to your, your own nervous system, I would say you can redirect the behavior to, you know, if the child, if you feeling an aversion to the type of touch the child is requesting or asking, playfully redirect. There might be other things that you can do with the child that will help the child feel valued. And that might be working for you as well. Having things like gentle hugs, let's do gentle hugs now so that you're teaching the child the type of touch you prefer, but you're not making them feel guilty for hugging you harder than you like. That's right. That's right. And we can, we can kind of do that again. It's in our, it's if you, if you're able to give a, a a voice with melody in it and stuff like that, but if you're freezing, okay, let's talk about now I'm concerned for the parents who are having, uh, I, I should say concerned. I have so much compassion and concern for parents who are freezing when they get a certain type of touch. Right. This represents a greater degree of trauma, according to the polyvagal theory. If you're freezing, it is kind of more intense than getting activated. So if you get angry, if you want to move away, that's one thing. That's what we something we can kind of redirect with. But if you're freezing, I, w- I have a lot of compassion for you. And I think that it, that might be, if, if you feel like the freezing is happening, on a regular basis, it might be a good signal to try to get into some somatic therapies for trauma, um, something like uh, sensory motor psychotherapy, EMDR, some of these um, therapies that Bessel van der Kolk talks about. You probably are very familiar, your audience is very familiar with his work on trauma to try to dislodge and recover from some of these earlier sensory memories. In my experience, um, and in uh, Bessel's as well, because I've uh, heard him talk about this, talk therapy, simple talk therapy, is not the most effective way to deal with sensory aversions. Right. So I would say that it should be trauma-informed, involve the body, so much compassion for yourself as a human, and then try to see if there's a way to allow your body to have new experiences with touch that maybe feel safer. Right. And it's going to take a while. It'll take many, many repetitions for your brain to start to predict safety from touch rather than non-safety. And go slow, work with someone, if you can, a really good person who can help you navigate. And I wish you the, right. I wish you the best. This is a I tough think that, situation. I think that a parent like that, a lot of times, a lot of post-traumatic parents will say like, I've done my therapy. And what they mean by that is a lot of talk therapy and the talk therapy is great, but sometimes we need a few different modalities of therapy to deal with all the different sort of tentacles of trauma before it's done. And yeah, our kids will sometimes be that fault line that sort of our kids are that, that stressor that makes us suddenly see that, oh, this is not quite as processed as I thought it was. I thought I was really yes. my trauma. Yes. Oh, thank you. Let's call that out. Talk therapy deals with conscious memories. Talk therapy doesn't deal with subconscious memories. And uh, talk therapy isn't the cat's meow. I'm a psychologist and I, you know, that, that's, what, that's what I get paid for essentially, but it's not very useful in trauma if your memories are lodged in your body. And again, I would redirect you to the website, Bessel van der Kolk, Bruce Perry, two of the top names, and then Peter Levine, uh, some of the big names that, that really involve, go way beyond talk therapy. Right. All right. Thank you so much. We have, I think we have learned so much today and such a great perspective, especially the self-compassion perspective of understanding how our, our, our brains and our children's brains are kind of like interacting and playing off each other. I think you're really giving so many post-traumatic parents the ability to look at their parenting and giving them that third path beyond what might be coercive and beyond being the pushover into that really effective co-regulation that they're looking for. I truly appreciate having you on the podcast today. Oh, I am. Thank you so much for having me. It's just, a, it's a new horizon for us all. And I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited about the application of, 
applied application uh, to parenting. And the book Beyond Behaviors is really about challenging behaviors. But I have a parenting book, a generic parenting book coming out that will be talking about parenting in general with some some of the things we've been talking about today and, and more. So look for that. And I'd love people to um, come on board on Facebook at Mona Delahook PhD and Instagram at Mona Delahook. Twitter and my uh, website, monadelahook.com. I am always wanting to have interaction with more parents and, and folks out there who are in this journey with us in the trenches. It's amazing. Check it out. Check out this way of parenting. Check out her new book because it's going to be coming out. Check it out because this is exactly the kind of approach that you've all been asking for. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take good care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? you have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents too. Can't wait to hear from you.